I'm Alex Franklin, the manager of the Bodleian Center for the Study of the Book. And I'm speaking to you from the printing workshop, which is located in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. In this ground floor room overlooking the quadrangle of the library are several cast iron hand presses, like this one, and a quantity of type. The Bodleian's printing workshop was established in 1949 to teach students of literature how books were composed and printed by hand. It is now used throughout the year by students and the community for demonstrations, experiments, and making books. The Book Arts program from the Bibliographical Press includes a printing residency and is supported by a generous private donation. Today, we are looking into a handmade artist's book that came into the Bodleian Library Special Collections in the past year. This is Body of Evidence by Ana Paula Cordero. And we're delighted to have the audience with uh, the, uh, the artist with us in this webinar. The Bodleian's copy of this book will be expertly handed, handled on screen by my colleague, Joe Maddox, a curator in the Bodleian's rare book section. I'd also like to say hello in New York to Dr. Merve Emre, Associate Professor of American Literature in the Faculty of English at the University of Oxford, and currently a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin. Merve is the author of books including Paraliterary, The Making of Bad Readers in Post-War America, and The Personality Brokers, A History of the Myers-Briggs Test, which is published in the UK under the title, What's Your Type? Uh, which seems very appropriate in this context. And readers of Merve Emery's books and essays will know her as a brilliant guide to the imaginative and material interaction of readers with publications of all kinds, and also an astute observer of literary revelations and concealments. Merve, you're there at the Center for Book Arts with Anna Paula. Yes. Hello, Anna. Hello, Merva. It's kind of extraordinary to be doing an event almost in person. <laughs> we are here at the Center for Book Arts. The audience might be able to see behind us several printing presses, and we are surrounded by over 600 different types of font. I'm holding an A and an M in my hands right now. So, Anna, I just wanted to invite you to start talking about your book, the process behind it, and what it means to you. It means a lot. It means a lot. This book spans uh, 20 years of my journals and my notes and my experiences, and they culminated with uh, the anxiety about immigration during the Trump administration. Um, I can share with you something that happened to me recently, post-book, to give you some of the flavor of what my, um, my inclination was when I tried to express the situation throughout the book. I was in a baby shower about a month ago, and a gentleman sat with us, an older gentleman, sat with us and started asking questions about Brazil, and he said he wanted to go to Brazil, which everybody says. And he was charming, he was engaging, he intended to express empathy, and the way he managed to do that was by saying, how did you manage to get out of there? And this deep sight you just had is my, um, my sentiment throughout the book. I was caught in that fraction of a second before I opened my mouth to answer, feeling that I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to tell him you were insulting me. 
but I also had to somehow bring it to light the fact that his uh, privilege had insulated him in such a way that the understanding that he could achieve charm and engaging by posing a question that come across as racist is, is just broken. It's like when language falls apart and, and the feelings and the emotions are so charged that people seem to have a disconnect between how they feel and how they express the feelings or also when the, the, the negativity of a certain circumstances will impress upon itself and will sweat out of the conversation without being invited, essentially. Mm -hmm. That was one circumstance that come to be. Uh, things like that were noted throughout my books, my journals over the course of the last 20 years. I came to New York in um, 2000. And incidentally, the answer to the question is I have never left. I couldn't come up to tell him that I had managed to get out of there. I have never left home. Home is with me. And that is a, a, a dimension of the immigration perspective that people will rationalize upon, but they cannot really touch on it unless they have experienced like you have, and like I have, and like a number of people in our audience probably have. Um, so during the past 20 years, in the process of learning English and um, getting acquainted with my new environment, I started to make journals and, and take notes in journals. And that is an example of a situation that I would have described in my book that later on when, when the animosity in relationship to the other uh, escalated to a, a very uh, pungent point in the past, I'd say five years, which was unusual. It hasn't happened to me before. I haven't before 2016 confronted that. It was, it was a very, um, it, I wasn't prepared for it because I had been here for 15 years and I have never, um, well, I had in subtle ways, but I have never been so blatantly challenged in my uh, assumptions of what right I have to be here or where do I come from. And this was all uh, accepted and folded in society. And then over the course of the last five years, those things became abrasive and became a reason for friction and, and challenges. And that is what the book speaks of mostly in and of itself, uh, trying to uh, puncture the privilege bubble that people live in, in a way that they lose perspective of how to, how to embrace and to welcome. And all they feel is a certain sense of possessiveness, like this story that I mentioned. And in that, it creates a lot of uh, material. It creates a lot of material to speak of. Um, I had taken lots of notes and the book speaks of it. I think we can start to highlight the book now. Thank you. If you can get back, get back real quick to the first page to show that page. That'll do it, that's fine. Yes, that's the one I'm thinking about. Uh, that that the, the way that uh, the typeset, it adds as a dagger the typeface will increasingly diminish in, time, in, in, in space. And that is describing a nightmare that I had in relationship to being uh, accepted or rejected. And the difficulty, Marvel just mentioned to me that the difficulty between uh, reading the first line and the last line is the emotion that I wanted to express to how to navigate 
the psychic landscape of feeling at the same time welcomed and threatened in the circumstances. Could you talk a little bit about that the faded mark that's in the upper corner um, where you yeah. see the little, the little X's? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I wanted to establish um, um, an identification of uh, the Giovanna dossier that these were, these were, uh, this was the record of a bunch of circumstances in which I wasn't supposed to be here or wasn't accepted as, uh, uh, as belonging in here. And as such, I wanted to imply a certain amount of uh, revelation and documentation. And those marks are speaking of where the information that is being read on the page, on the page that is coming, where from. It's coming from my journals or something that I've heard or my portfolios or what is the language, if it's English or Portuguese, mm -hmm. and what were the, the, the medium, if it was uh, image or, or um, a story that I heard, if it's oral or, or written. There's the variations on it. It repeats throughout the book. It's meant to be somewhat illegible. And that speaks of uh, treating word like texture or language as something that is tangible, not necessarily just spoken of, but something that has a presence that is beyond its own meaning. It, 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 um, it exists in, in, in a substratum, which is what you're holding, you're holding type. Yes. So that's, that is the, um, that's the ultimate engagement with trying to find a voice mm -hmm. that I can think of. Um, yes, please, Joe, can you go to that page where you were heading towards before? Speaking of difficulty. Uh, this particular page is um, a reference to some um, process that was made in antiquity when people had to send letters abroad and they did not know if the messenger would be alive at the end of the journey. Uh, they would do what's called a double tied document. The element of um, the, the element of the information that should be preserved from the viewer was going to be concealed and only aspects of it would be shown. So people would know what the letter was and where it was supposed to go, but they wouldn't be able to, and what was the content, but they wouldn't be able to access the, the more, um, the more uh, damaging details, to say so. And in this particular case, what I did was I, I reversed the, the type. So if you look up close, that is the back of the letter. And those letters that are, the, the, the phrase that are bold, in, they're black essentially, they were printed in reverse. So from the back of the letter, this is a very uh, sheer tissue. From the back of the letter, I blacked out with black ink and you can, what you can see from the front of it, I'm sorry, from the back of it is the ink that has resisted the black seeping of the information. And those are what I would say in my language would be the, the incriminating details that I had been here that those were the dates and that's what I was doing. I was supervising, I was collaborating in 2005 or 2002. And those were uh, details that could potentially damage me if one wanted to um, consider that damaging. Uh, I find it interesting how things can be used in whichever way they're supposed to be used, that uh, people will take advantage of a circumstance and twist it in a way that can be serving to the purposes regardless of what the context is. And that is what that speaks of, in a way. And, and redaction is exactly. such a powerful yeah. textual tool of 
our government, right? Yep. They that's what they use to deny people exactly information. And so I think it's brilliant how you've appropriated Thank that, you. yeah, for your own purposes. Thank you. Book. I I did that somewhat unconsciously. I haven't yeah. thought about that aspect that you just yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Joy, please carry on. By the way, the book is uh, shaped as, you can carry on, I will just speak throughout. The book is shaped as an envelope, as if you uh, picked up your pages, uh, you picked up your flaps and opened up a part. That is the shape that you see. And that is also something that cannot be uh, fixed on its foot. So the book will not stand on its own. And that is a reference to the vulnerability of the circumstances. Um, I particularly appreciate how difficult is to handle this page. That is not paper, that is a piece of a sheer cotton that I have printed on directly. And the, the, the tactile, tactile quality of it is one thing, but also how it, how it feels like you are going to damage something that is precious or something that has, it, that has a lot of meaning and it can also be, um, it can also be destroyed easily. Thank you, Joe. I mean, it's, it also is probably supposed to remind us of the flag. Yes. Right, the colors of the, yes. of the flag. Yeah. And, and a sense of danger. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> sorry, I meant the red to highlight. Uh, um, the red is used throughout the book as a, um, a reference to danger and to contextualizing what is at the same time exciting and uh, threatening mm. in a way. Uh, this page is a page that some people have expressed a lot of curiosity about. In terms of process, mainly, uh, this is an alternative photographic process, which means that those are uh, ways of printing photographs that did not depend on a lot of equipment. At that time, uh, people didn't have the technology to do, uh, to manipulate photographs or to create certain types of engagement with the images. And what they did was to use the sun. That, that those are ways of uh, exposing material exposing chemicals that will, um, will count primarily on sunlight to develop the image. And I think there's a lot of poetry to that. Um, that is a combination of two different processes, a cyanotype and a Van Dyke Brown. And what happens when you overlap those chemicals is that they become very unpredictable. So this is essentially impossible to, uh, rep to re repeat consistently. Uh, each one of those, there are several elements of the book that are not actually editionable, by which I mean you cannot really replicate exactly alike, which is part of being a personal experience. This particular one, I enhanced that aspect of not being quite replicable by adding the folds and the folds on the paper made it be that the chemicals would pull around and get overlapped in different, um, different densities and that creates a different result. Speaking of uh, real life, I appreciate the capacity of um, creating material from organic principles. Mm. Thank you, Joe. We can carry on now. At one point, could we zoom in on that little um, chart in the corner uh, that shows the, the documentation notes? Um, any of those top, the, the top, top right, yeah. There you go. 
Excellent. Yep. Uh, those cross marks actually, they, they have, there is a bunch of reference to that. Danger, uh, emotion, and also Emily Dickinson. Because part of this book was motivated by having read a book, A Poem by Her, in which she expressed the desire to go to Brazil. Mm. And it speaks of the one thing that she was not able to do. And that's, that, that touches me very deeply because I have in my current life access to artistic expression and um, a community that keeps me in New York, but I miss home. So it is as if I have, um, not is this, as if I do have a choice. I made a choice, I paid a price to be here and to do my artwork and the prices that I'm removed from my background, from my roots, from my family, essentially. But I was also thinking when you mentioned that the book is in the shape of an envelope, <laughs> I was thinking about Dickinson's envelope. Yeah. Fragments. Fragments, right, yeah. envelope poems. Yeah. And how you've created something that really resonates with that, this, this collection of art that is also functioning as a documentation of its own medium. Exactly. Of, of creation and of transmission. Precisely. And how that endured. Right. How that endured and how that um, had such a, such a meaning, such a layer of meaning that was not even what was, I mean, I can't speak for what was that she expected, but the repercussions of uh, her thinking into our lives, into my personal life is of a dimension that I find that just, it makes my hair yeah. kind of rise in a sense. So let's carry on. There was one aspect of this book that, um, that, that spoke of the book in itself was that I had to work really hard to stop doing it because there was always material to, spoke of, to, to be spoken of. I started off with just a few pages and it kept on growing because of the circumstances, because of the situation. There is a this material there that was actually never intended to be there to start with. And that became part of it because because the, the urgency, the pressing, the, the charge of the moment made it, it was just impossible to leave it behind. And I could have carried on working on it. I just had to at some point put my foot down and, and say I had to move on to do something else as opposed to staying on endlessly growing this one project. Uh, this is the colophon. Do you want to speak about colophon, Alex? Uh, just one uh, thing, I'm sorry to interrupt, that a little figure that is, uh, embedded within the text on a previous page. There was a very little um, uh, oval-shaped figure embedded within the text. And uh, I think that's a really lovely thing that's not easy to see from afar, but we, we, will, we could look closely at that. Oh now. yeah, that is, that is one of my tricks to express difficulty and, and uh, anguish. And, uh, and the fact that reality is somewhat not quite real and palpable. This, it's, it's meant to be this way. It's hard to read for a reason. Um, this is a dream in which at some point towards the end of the dream, there was a silver leopard that's on the, the last line over there. And that image, if you can lift the page just ever so slightly, Joe, you can see that image is like a shimmering, shimmering um, print of, um, like, yeah, it's hard to see and that is intentional. 
if you have the book in front of you, and that's part of what it means to interact with a book as an artwork, that each person is going to have its own experience on it. Um, is there a little animal in there? It's a cat. It's a cat. Yeah, yeah. it's a big leopard. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's intended to be that you can see it in a particular position if you are in, in a very distinct angle in relationship to the page mm -hmm. and how the light bounces, mm -hmm. which is the feeling that I get when I'm waking up in the morning and I dream profusely and I have um, I have to declutter my mind on a regular basis to get rid of all the debris of emotions that carry on with my dreams. And that is what comes to be. Um, there's the sense of trying to focus on what is important and let go of what is just creating anxiety in a way. That's what the difficulty of reading that image comes up to me. Book, book arts are very particular in that way. It's not the kind of art that uh, one responds to by being exposed to, it's the kind of art that one responds to by being intimate with. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand that that creates certain difficulties at this day and age because not many people will be able to touch this book. But I strongly believe on, on the power of the one and to one of the few people that will touch the book that will, create, that will create something that is authentic, that is uh, irreplicable in a way. Well, that's part of the logic of the envelope too, yes. right? What you put in an envelope is not intended for everybody exactly. to read. It has a designated exactly. recipient. Yeah. And so there's always something about the intimacy yeah. of yeah. an envelope that invites that kind of singular experience, I'd say. Another lovely point to make. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like me to show, Anna, while I have the book on screen? Um, no, maybe we can just talk about the colorful for a bit. The last part. I thought you might be curious about it. Did you have a different opportunity to, to read it? I, I, I looked at it. Yeah, I read the text. So this, I mean, your discussion of this is interesting to me because because I only saw the photographs of uh -huh. the book that were sent to me from the Bodleian. Mm -hmm. And so I probably spent more time reading the text then than I did, but also just because I'm like wildly ignorant when it comes to these questions of process. So this is really educational mm -hmm. for me uh -huh. to hear you talk about all of this. Um, but this was this was very interesting to me in part because it seemed like on the one hand an acknowledgments page, mm -hmm. and on the other hand a kind of documentation of how many different people are involved mm -hmm. in producing a book like this and how right. they each have their own emotional investments in different parts of the book, the binder, the printer, the artist. Yeah. There's an amazing community <laughs> that, that comes out on this page for me. I don't know if that tallies with your that's wonderful with your experience of it. But yeah, yeah, that's that 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 is a, a bit of a nod to um, to the distance between craftsmanship and artistry, mm -hmm. which for me are one thing and they're none. Uh, the binder, the printer and the arts are the same person. And that is the, the play that I, I, I do throughout the colophon is I'm shifting the highlight between the process and the creation of it and, and integrating that as if one. A colophon, just to give a little audience background, the colophon is, um, it's a, as I said, an acknowledgement page. Technically, it is what comes at the end of the book describing where the book was made and what's the materials that were used. And it's something that functions as a bibliographical reference. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, I extrapolated quite a lot from it because 
I was under the influence of uh, a bunch of different color phones that I had read, particularly Walter Hamadi. There were, we had a, a, a show of his work at the Central Arts while I was writing his color phone, and he would be very playful of it. Instead of talking about the process, he would talk about his puppy, or he would talk about, he just kind of shifted around to whatever he could. And the reason why he did that is because he's the artist and he has the power to determine the outcome of any of the stages. In this particular case, I was very um, inspired by Fernando Pessoa, which is a Portuguese poet that spoke in very different languages. He had a bunch of different, over 70 different writing styles and each one of them was its own character. And that is the point of me shifting the focus from the artist to the printer to the binder because they're all one person. Mm -hmm. And there were also other people that came involved in other circumstances that have uh, added to the layering of the content of this book and the production of it in itself. It's also um, a reference to several different places in literature, Emily Dixon included, or books that I have read and poetry that can have come my way or things that I have written in different ways. Um, yeah, it is, it's complex. It's, it's not behaving well. It's a very misbehaving colorful. <laughs> it has, it is like a, a wild creature that has brown loads in its own, its own context. It's also the one part of the book that my name shows in reality, other than the redacted pages. And it's intended to be that it's, it can be taken away from the book. So in essence, this book could have no identity. If you take that one page out, because it's not bound to the book, it's just inside an envelope. If we refer, if we take that one page out, um, the book doesn't have an identity. The book doesn't belong to, or was not in practice made by anyone in particular. It could be the voice of a bunch of people who have been through the circumstances that I have been through. And it has that, that, that um, ambition in a way. But also when the page was just moved, the, the the red yeah that's it's underneath a, it it's like discovering a crime scene or something right? little, it's yeah. like finding blood splatter underneath underneath the colophon yeah see yeah right it's um, like those are those are clues to some kind of mystery they are uh, yeah I haven't um I haven't processed those things in terms of a uh, uh, desired outcome those were not necessarily mm -hmm. my goals but a lot yeah. of things came into being in the process of making the book. And it belongs with the story, it belongs with the sentiment, with the emotion that I'm trying to convey and with the process of making the book in itself. But yeah, not many people will remove that, right. but the ones who will remove that will have that experience, mm. which is, speaks of the authenticity in a way. It's fascinating. Um, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Is there anything else that you'd like me to show before I? And maybe you can just shift to the front cover again mm. so I can speak a little bit of the materials that are in there. There, there are a few different elements in that, and, and they are elements. They are not a representation of the element, they are the element in itself. They, Bits of brown that look like they're pointing out to the words of to the word evidence. Those are wood bark. Those are pieces from trees that I have sanded and embedded in the cover. And it's a little bit of uh, under the word evidence. There is a, a, a streak of mother of pearl mm. that is in again the element itself, not a representation of it. Um, 
part of that is to highlight how important it is for me and I guess for the process of people experience the work and responding to it, that there is a physicality of it, that it is um, my life that is being exposed of, there is my presence here that has been either questioned or accepted in a way. It's not a representation of it, it's the thing in itself. And then that might be, um, I have made books for 20 years now, I'm sorry, 18 years now. And this book might have been the one that I have been the most vulnerable of at all. It's probably, it is, certainly is. It, it, it was difficult to make. It was difficult to, to write. It was difficult to print, very challenging. And it was very difficult to bind. And I did not expect that difficulty. That was something that came as a revelation, how challenging it was to put myself through that process, even though I have experience with all those techniques. The content made it be, there was an added layer of uh, internal struggle mm -hmm. to, to dive in and to parse through in a way. So yeah, that, that, the, 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 the roughness of those, those layers of leather that had been sanded away and the way things kind of fall apart are speaking about that, speaking about that, um, that dimension of having to go through something that was literally visceral and speaking from a, a place of uh, great vulnerability to it. Well, there, there is a kind of extraordinary tension between the personal and yeah. the impersonal in this yeah. book. So those moments where you've redacted your name mm -hmm. or your name is in the telephone, but it can be removed, mm -hmm. right? And this book could be the product of anybody's experience. Yeah. But on the other hand, the text in the book contains very sort of detailed and intimate descriptions of physical injuries mm -hmm. that you've sustained, accidents that mm -hmm. you've been in. Um, and, and so I really admire that kind mm. of, that, that tension that's set up in the book between thinking anybody could have spoken or written or created this, yeah. crafted it into existence, mm -hmm. and then the particularity of it belonging mm -hmm. to one person in one person's body. Yep, that's a very astute observation, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we're good with the book, Joe. We can maybe bounce back to the next stage. That's wonderful. So I think um, we are going to have a bit of a tour, a uh, mini tour of the Center for Book Arts. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Karina Reynolds. I'm the executive director of Center for Book Arts. Um, thank you, Merv and Anna, for that wonderful walkthrough of your book. It's amazing to hear you speak about it in depth. I've been watching this come into being over, I mean, I think almost I've been, have I been watching this happen over 10 years now? I think that's about how long we've known each other. Um, but so wonderful. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so we are here at Center for Book Arts. Uh, CBA was founded in uh, 1974 by the artist Richard Minsky. He uh, started the organization with the idea that artists in New York City needed a space to um, have access to the tools and materials that you need to produce books. Um, and if you can imagine, you know, being in New York City, uh, it's actually quite hard if you're living in a six floor walk up to, um, you know, 
have your own letterpress. So I'm going to give you a view outside of our window here. Um, so this is what it's like here in New York. And this is the type of equipment that we have. Um, so right now we're standing in our print shop um, in New York City. And the, one of the first things you might notice are all of these beautiful or very um, chaotic <laughs> uh, skinny drawers. Um, this is our letterpress print shop and each of these drawers contains its own font of type. We have over 650 typefaces here at CBA um, or 650 fonts. Um, and each one of these uh, drawers has its own little uh, thing here. And this is gonna be Actually, let's pick up something that's a little more recognizable. Very hard to see. I don't know if we can, it's not gonna focus. Anyways, each one of these little things here has its own letter. So when an artist comes to CBA and they start to work in our print shop, one of the first things they learn about is how to set type. Um, and this is one of the key processes that Anna used in her project, Body of Evidence. Um, so, you know, you're all familiar with, um, let's say, uh, you know, word processing or email programs where you're able to easily switch from bold to italic, from Comic Sans to New York Times uh, or to Times Roman. And um, here, instead of easily switching back and forth, you have to pull a whole nother drawer. You have to pull and you have to set and pick up each one of those individual pieces and you put them together. So Anna pulled out a really wonderful treat for us here, um, which is actually some of the type that she set for body of evidence. So this is that page here again that Anna was showing us. Um, it has that beautiful iridescent, very subtle, um, image. And you can see the type here. It's all letterpress printed. It was printed on one of these presses right here. This is called a Vandercook proofing press. Um, it's a semi-automatic, uh, semi-manual um, letterpress that was originally developed to proof. Um, also in Word, uh, like Microsoft Word and, and word processing software, you're able to easily find and catch mistakes. Here, you have to take this type and put it on this press bed, print it, ink it, and then read it and make sure that everything's fine. So that is something that Anna did for every single copy of this book. Each of these letters here is hand set by her upside down and backwards, um, and then set up on the press, printed and proofed, and then printed again. Um, one of my favorite things about watching the production of this book was that I would often come into the studio while Anna was working in the morning or in the late evening, and she would be set up on one of these presses. I feel like, is it this one? Yeah, here, I'll show you which press it was. This one here. Um, so she would often be standing right behind the press, working, having these huge sheets of paper and they would just be rolling through the press. And it was always, it was almost this meditative process, which I, I really loved. Um, 
one of the amazing things that CBA is able to offer to our um, artists that come in and use our spaces is um, that we now finally, after many years, which was I think helpful at the very end while you were doing your call phone maybe, um, we have a type catalog which shows where every typeface is. It's organized by cabinet. So if you discover something and you wanna know what it is, then you have this here. Um, typeface, if you're looking for something particular and point size, if you're looking for something in a particular size. And that all corresponds to also a type specimen book. So we do have an incredible variety of typefaces at Center for Book Arts, things that are incredibly unique that you would have never seen anywhere else. I mean, some of them are, um, you know, one or two um, known fonts in the world of the same uh, typeface, which is kind of amazing. Um, so Anna had a lot of um, options to choose from while she was working on Body of Evidence. Um, so just quickly to tell you a little bit more about how our studios work here at CBA. We um, are free and open to the public. So anyone who wants to learn how to print or make a book can come to CBA, um, take a class, learn how to use these presses, learn how to set type, and then they can come in on um, really right now, Monday through Saturday, um, 11 to four, and they can actually just get dirty. Um, so we recognize that the fact that you can't have one of these presses in your apartment, that you can't have a 36 inch guillotine in your apartment. Um, and so we make that available to the artists. Um, we also have six to 10 artists in residence per year. They stay here for an entire year. They get to use our presses. They have keys. Anna is also a key holder. So um, it's not uncommon to see her with the artists in residence um, early in the morning or late at night working on something spectacular. Um, and you really get uh, to immerse yourself. So we have um, studio programs here. We have classes. We have artist residence exhibitions, which you may have um, noticed as I was walking into the print shop, as well as an incredible collection. Um, so with that, I will pass it back to you all. And um, thank you for coming to visit me in New York. Um, and let's see here. So I think we'll just chat a little bit about the book, if that's all right with you. I, I mean, I'm so fascinated being here because I usually see books that are much more conventional <laughs> and on the other side mm -hmm. of the process. So I feel like this is like Christmas for me or something. <laughs> um, body of Evidence is full of so many different voices, not just your voice, but the voices of friends, whose text messages you show, mm -hmm. Emily Dickinson, as you mentioned, Pessoa, uh, William James, Rebecca Solnit. How did you match those voices to fonts? How did you decide how to visualize different people's contributions mm -hmm. to, the, to the book? I think that came as part of the process of the material that is behind the font, most of the pattern itself. Mm -hmm. The book has uh, two different voices, essentially, my voice and everybody else's voices. My voice is normally uh, sans serif and italic. And when I'm speaking of a quotation of somebody else's, I'm using a serif font 
that is on Roman. Mm. And the context of it comes from what Mathieu has been lately under. Mm. In Rebecca Sonic's case, for instance, I'm speaking about how her writing refers to this, this uh, dimension of wandering and discovery and the process of um, process of layering emotions on it. And that is what you see in the back of her voice, mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, I could have changed it. I could have used a variety of uh, different typefaces because we have that the grace in the simple parts, it's available. But I, I prefer to be more conservative about it because I didn't want to create um, a cacophony. That could have, that could, can be an effect of using that many different typefaces that you, people start to feel overwhelmed as if they are in a room that has a lot of clamoring. Mm -hmm. And that's something interesting about a uh, sensation in a way that certain things will translate in certain ways in different senses. Mm -hmm. So a visual, uh, visual clutter will create a sensation of heat, for instance, and it's something that I have read about. And that I wanted to create, a, 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 I want to be able to control the temperature of the book, so to speak, in a way. That's fascinating. Why those, um, why those voices? So we talked a little bit already about Dickinson's poetry mm -hmm. and the sort of effect it has. Mm -hmm. um, why William James? Why Rebecca Solnit? Why Pessoa? What, what is it about these interlocutors mm -hmm. that, that spoke to you? Those are passages that I have copied on my journals mm -hmm. while I was reading those books or exposure to that material. Those are particular passages that I spoke to the moment that I was living throughout. Mm -hmm. And that has an, an aspect of randomness to it. That I find it just utterly fascinating that at that particular moment, I have access to that particular piece of information that was so referential to where I was at exactly. Mm -hmm. That is the, the invitation process to participate in the book. There are also, uh, there's also an aspect of affinity. Um, William James is, has done great studies about um, the, the, the spirituality of psychology psychology of spirituality, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, and um, the complexities of a discovery, of a process of inner discovery, which is something that I speak of. Mm. Um, Rebecca Sonnet is mm. one of my greatest heroes. Basically everything that she says could have been written about my life and a number of people's lives that I know of. But in particular, for this book, um, I, I not only welcomed her, I embraced her perspective of being able to embrace the unknown mm -hmm. and welcome the, welcome the variables mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. Fernando Pessoa, again, in the, he speaks in Portuguese, which is something that I wanted to touch. And the, he, he is known growing up in Brazil and being, being exposed to Fernando Pessoa in literature classes gave me the sense that he was a, a kind of a melancholy character, not very sexy at all. My, my colleagues would refer to him as kind of a droopy, sort of difficult person to deal with, as if it's, it's this, this hurdle we have to cross through. Mm. I never got that feeling from him. I always thought that he was somewhat cheerful in his very negative perspective, very pessimistic <laughs> approach to life that had an element of, uh, element of faith in mankind. To speak that throughout our own internal darkness, there will be a moment of light, and there will be a moment of um, revelation that is supposed to be available to us all if we dare, in a way. Well, there are interesting moments in the book itself where you think a situation that you are in is going to turn out 
very, very badly, right? Yes. So when you, there, there's a, a story that is narrated where you mm -hmm. fall and you have a concussion and you mm -hmm. have to go to the hospital and you're worried about both the police and, mm -hmm. the, and the medical system, mm -hmm. right? But it turns out everyone is sort of wonderfully sympathetic yeah. and you're really well cared for, yeah. which is not what one expects as you're yeah. building up to that story. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like the book, you know, in, in, in talking about the sort of politics of immigration or the politics of migration, do you mm -hmm. feel like it does have those moments of optimism where the structures we think are supposed to oppress actually what not, yeah, actually yeah. work for you or yeah. actually provide this really strange source of care. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in a way, I felt that New York City always took care of me. Yeah. And that is something that I think is particular to New York City. I haven't been around many places. I came from my hometown, Salvador, to New York, and I stayed here the rest of my life. Yeah. So I'm not that uh, familiar with what happens in other places as opposed to, I know from third person experience, but I haven't experienced myself. I felt that New York, I always felt that New York took care of me, that New York and the Center for Carbs as an organization, which is an extremely progressive organization, mm -hmm. uh, has welcomed the other and has provided for the other and embraced and, and accommodated the other into its own folds. Um, MIPD is a tricky subject, New York Police Department. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of the people that I know have had negative interaction with NYPD, but somehow, I always had good luck with them. Good luck to the extent that they let me off the hook a number of times. Mm. Out of, uh, I suspect, uh, again, a sense of protection. And that is something that is present throughout the book, this inherent tension between um, uh, welcoming and uh, questioning my mm. presence at the mm -hmm. same time. Well, and, and also one of the things that you say in the book that really moved me was that the language or the category of immigrant mm. doesn't quite work for you, but neither yeah. does the category of expatriate. Yep. And that you feel like you sit somewhere in between or perhaps somewhere outside of. Or nowhere. Or nowhere, yeah. right. And I, I, would, I was just curious to hear you speak a little more about that kind of unknowing, mm. right? Not knowing what category of, of other yeah. one belongs to. It's something that I had to settle with, that I had to come to terms with. I think it's very instinctive to human nature to want to know where you fit and to yeah. find yourself in a particular yeah. place and settle with it and feel confident that that's where you belong. Mm -hmm. And I haven't gotten to that, even though I feel that I, I am here and I'm fully presently here, mm -hmm. to the extent that what I do is basically, um, like the, my genetics is in that book. There is part of me in that book that cannot be dissociated from myself while at the same time it speaks of an experience that is universal, mm. I hope. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's, something about, there's something about not knowing what to expect that had made me resilient. Mm. And um, a friend of mine had called it long-term uncertainty. And it, it, it went through, I went through moments with it. I had a bout of anxiety for a few years that was borderline paralyzing. And then I managed to overcome it and come to a point where I'm quite functional within my, within the, the parameters of my anxiety, as long as I respect it, respect, respect me back in a way. Mm. And I think that that is a, a character of, that's a, not a character, is a result of um, understanding that at the same time, I have a degree of control, but it, I am at, at, at um, 
I don't want to say at the mercy because that sounds a little too dramatic, but I am, at, I am under the influence of circumstances that are completely out of my control and have come to be in peace with it. I've come to, I've come to operate within it without uh, letting it uh, paralyze me in a way. Does that answer your question? It does. I mean, it's also obviously been an opportunity for a kind of aesthetic pleasure. Yes. I mean, there's a great deal, as much as there's pain in this book mm -hmm. and as much as there's agitation, mm -hmm. there's also a great deal of beauty that is yeah. that springs from that, I think. And that's what I that's what I like about about the book, that it mm -hmm. is it, it's a body of evidence that doesn't point to any one particular conclusion. Yeah. Right. It keeps all of yeah. these questions about belonging, mm -hmm. about identity, mm -hmm. about what an individual's relationship is to these larger structures around mm -hmm. them. It keeps all of those questions animated. It doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't settle them. Yep. once and for all and I there I is like no settling right? right there is there is no there is no there right. is no end inside to the question that's work in progress that's mankind's work in progress right right I think we should maybe take some questions from the audience yes there are some questions and I'll and um some of them are are very technical about the process and some of them are about the book and the, the life of the book um after your creation uh so just to so summarize a couple of them um asking about what are the technically challenging aspects of of that book what were the technically challenging aspects of that book to make what was the most challenging um and then within that perhaps a, a specific question what was the process for creating that iridescent medallion effect with the leopard there's a, a great curiosity about that um, um i i certainly struggled with the shape of it you're working when we are working with an edition we want it to be somewhat consistent there is such a thing as a variable edition but ideally we are working within a, a, a not ideally my intention of it i mean those things are all so subjective to what is the artistic profile of it in my case i want it to be consistent i it, it's a tension between understanding embracing the embracing the organic aspect of it that it's kind of wild and determines its own outcome but wanting it to be somewhat controllable and be something that I recognize as my own and that belongs within itself and reflects one another. The shape was hard. The, the, to keep that shape uh, consistent throughout the book, it was a, a very hard, a physically demanding process. There, was, there were many layers of, uh, um, many moments of different cuts and, 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 and uh, what's called a jig. I had to create some sort of a, um, form to cut through and to replicate that that many times. It's an edition of nine and the book grew quite large. I did not expect, when I settled for that shape, I did not know I was getting myself into it because I didn't realize how big the book was going to be as, as a reference to material that kept on coming and kept on being incorporated to the book. So it was like a mountain that kept on growing. I figured that something and then I, more happened and I had to figure something else and and stay with the process of it. It was very labor intensive, the shape in itself. And the covers are what's called a lacunose process, in which you basically strip the finish out of the leather. And that exposes the suede side of the leather. And that's why the suede is very, um, it's like a sponge, things will attach to it in a way. And that's how the, uh, the, the three barks and the other elements are so seamlessly fit in because that becomes a, a 
leather is the skin. That's something for us to remember. That's something that is also part of why um, the, the book speaks of the circumstances in and of itself. Um, it's a skin that had been treated to absorb different materials in a way. And that is uh, technically challenging. It's labor intensive. It's just physically gruesome. It's very messy, um, but also very rewarding because it responds to, it responds to, um, it, I think people respond to it in a level that is more visceral than they would otherwise. Uh, the iridescence, iridescency on that uh, cat image, which is a leopard, is a, an effect of the paper, actually. That the little paper that is attached to it is Gumpy. And Gumpy is not made out of wood. Gumpy is made out of beaten grass, grass that has been pounded until it had become like it's something that is very silvery and, and thin and malleable. It doesn't behave like paper. You cannot really glue it like paper. You cannot really uh, teach treat, treat it like it is paper, but it's not. And it has a very fine, it's more like, it behaves like silk. It's like if you were to think of silk in, in, in paper form, that's what Gumpy is. And typically letterpress does not get a lot of metallics. It's a very opaque system, but with Gumpy you can get that. It, it, it responds to light in a way because it has its own luminosity. This is probably so obvious to you mm -hmm. um, and to anyone else who works with these materials, but I'm suddenly really struck by how like the, the natural, the non-human, animal, <laughs> the mechanical, and the human all come together yeah. in the process of making yeah. this book. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, we spoke a lot about the printing part of it, but the binding right. is its own. Right. Forgive me for saying that the binding is its own animal, in a way. So. Um, Merve, there's a question for you. What's the potential for books like this in teaching? Well, it's, it's so funny because right before we started this webinar, I was saying that I have to bring my students to the Bodleian when I teach Emily Dickinson to look at your, to look at your book. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think the potential, well, I think there are two really important things. I think first the potential is that the same way I'm having an educational experience here talking to mm -hmm. Anna, my students can have the same educational experience and they can understand how uh, the, the text of a book cannot be and should not be divorced from a consideration of the materials that mm -hmm. go into making and printing and binding the book. Mm -hmm. So just to be more book historical in my teaching, I feel very inspired by this. But then the, the second uh, potential, I think, is to show how 19th century texts can have these extraordinary 21st century resonances. Mm -hmm. yep and to show my students that we can think Emily and Anna together um, and understand, uh, and, and Walt, I, I put Walt Whitman in there too, I would sort of uh -huh. teach you three together um, and, and understand what it means to talk about belonging, what it means to talk about citizenship mm -hmm. and, and what it means um, to talk about the nation as mm -hmm. such and how books give us a kind of insight into those categories in this immediate embodied mm -hmm. physical and, and intimate, intimate way. So this has been very inspiring for thinking about my course planning uh, in Michaelmas term. Wonderful. And I suppose we only have a, a few seconds to finally ask Anna, there's a lot of curiosity about, of course, this is a book you've, you've said, which is in very few copies. Um, how many 
copies have you produced and is there a, a practical maximum? And uh, there, there, is a, there is also a question from our keeper of special collections here at the Bodleian. Um, do you tailor this for the recipients? Um, he's interested to know, is the copy that's come into the Bodleian specially tailored for the library? Hmm. Um, it's an edition of nine. The limitation on that is that it's, it's too much work. <laughs> it's just an insane amount of work. How and long does it take you to make each one? I can't measure it in time. I have yeah. been working on this process and this project for about five years. To, it's all printed now and to bind it takes me there. The pages are printed and folded and cut to shape. Now what I have to do before each one gets out of the house is to make the covers and incorporate the covers to the book itself. And that takes me about a month between making the covers and making the box mm. at this stage. And I have been working on it for five years. So it's, it's, it's quite, it's not five years that exclusively dedicated to that, but it, it's, it's labor intensive in a way that it can't really get paid for that. Mm. It's the kind of labor that it, it is labor of love. You put it on it and, and something is gonna work out in the end and you're gonna move on, but it's not to be penciled out to particular expenses. Um, I, I have been working on them as it comes. So I cannot say that I tailor to each one of them. The, the colorful is personalized, so the book will be commissioned by whoever is the purchaser of it. But um, it, it, I think, I, I don't say, I couldn't say that I made it for the for, for your copy is your copy, but I can say that uh, the copy that you have was the copy that I produced in that particular time. And that speaks of where I was at almost emotionally because there are things that I do to the letter that if I am somewhat too angry or not uh, rested enough, will reflect in a way or the other. There, there are copies that will probably have a, the cover particularly have more of a kind of a calm, um, centered um, language to itself. And the copies that will betray more emotion than, than I had meant it to, in a way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you so much, Anna. Welcome. Thank you, Merve. Thank you to our, our audience and the questions, which I'm afraid we've, we've not been able to answer all of them, but we will save those and, and convey those to Anna again. Um, and thank you to our hosts, the Center for Book Arts in New York, to Karina Reynolds for that wonderful tour, um, to my colleagues, uh, Joe Maddox, who was handling the book in the Bodleian Library, uh, and Steph Spreadbro, who has been hosting us on this Zoom call behind the scenes uh, very expertly. Um, we do hope to see you all again at other events, um, either online like this, like this, which is such a, a great way to connect across the Atlantic, or of course in person.